Welcome to Yoga Chit Chat. I'm Phoebe Schiff, yoga teacher, aspiring herbalist, and water sign. And I'm Karak Morinaga, yoga teacher, Japanese language student, and tantric philosophy student. Every week we meet virtually to discuss a different yoga philosophy, principle, or theme. Today's topic is the Yoga Sutras. The Yoga Sutras are a collection of short aphorisms or almost just like one-liners that are designed to lay out an entire system of yoga philosophy, really an entire system of yoga practice. They're attributed to someone named Patanjali, and we think that the Yoga Sutras were first collected at about 200, between about 200 and 400 in the Common Era. Although even that wide range of time, you can give or take 200 years on either end of that. But most scholars, I think, put the Yoga Sutras at about 200 to 400 in the Common Era. So they're old. There's, they are old. Um, not as old as maybe a lot of people think. Very often I'll hear that yoga is 5,000 years old. I'll, I'll be in a yoga class and teachers will say things like, yoga is this 5,000 year old practice. And I think that maybe yoga is 5,000 years old, but we don't have a lot of evidence that yoga dates back that far. The evidence, quote unquote, that we have for yoga being 5,000 years old are just little carvings of people sitting in cross-legged positions. But really, if you're going to carve a human figure, there's only so many ways that you can have the human figure in your carving. So maybe they're standing or running or walking or they're sitting, and there's only so many ways to sit, uh, especially back in a time where maybe they didn't have a lot of different chairs and things. So maybe yoga is that old, but maybe it's a lot more recent. And even the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which are from the classical yoga system, which are very old, uh, really we're only dating back to about, again, 200 to 400 in the common era. Right. Well, and an important distinction to make is that yoga asana is not nearly as old as raja yoga, which is the mental science of yoga, which is really what Patanjali gets into in the sutras. And so we'll never know what that person in the carving was doing, whether they were meditating or whether they were just chilling. But what is important to note is that people may have been practicing yoga without any asana for centuries before asana or any of it came about. Right. I think that's a very important distinction. Assuming that yoga sutras are around 200 in the common era, it's maybe not for another seven to 700 to a thousand years later that asana becomes a thing. I believe that 
yoga asana comes out of the tantric philosophy, which is several hundred years after the yoga sutras that we're talking about today. But the yoga sutras are really a system of yoga and the yoga sutras collect a lot of different ideas of philosophy from uh, prior systems, from the Upanishads, from Buddhism, from Jainism. Patanjali is bringing together sort of the, the best of the ideas and systematizing a philosophy. The yoga philosophy is, well, the tradition at the time is oral, so they're not written down in books or anything. So a teacher, a yoga teacher would memorize these aphorisms. And in the Yoga Sutras, there are approximately 200, I think it's 195 or 196 of them. And the teacher would teach them to the student and the student would memorize the the couple hundred sutras and the relationship between student and teacher would be this practice of unpacking and understanding in greater detail each of the sutras that were memorized. I think this part is really interesting. The yoga sutras are pretty terse and the intention of them being terse was to keep them short, to keep them bare. In fact, the word sutra translates into thread. And in one of my versions, it says that a sutra is the bare thread of an exposition, the minimum. The reason for that was because at the time that these were conceived of, there weren't books yet. So like you're saying, they were memorized and expanded upon. Yeah, it was just such a different way of working with them because there weren't books yet. What's also really cool though about them being so short is that in that teacher and student practice, then there was this opportunity for the student and teacher to define them and explore them in all of these different ways, kind of like you and I are doing now. I like that each sutra can be studied and unpacked and practiced on its own and become really a big point of focus or study. And then each of those threads also is part of a bigger tapestry. We have all of these threads and they're woven together into this complete system of philosophy. And then we can pull on each thread one at a time and examine each thread one at a time to go deeper, to get more myopic in our studies, or we can back up and look at the the bigger picture. One of the coolest parts of the Yoga Sutras from my perspective is that they are organized in a way such that if you understand the very first sutra and achieve it, then you don't need to move on to the remaining 194, 195. That said, the first sutra, I have a couple different definitions of it. One is just simply, this is the beginning of instruction in yoga. 
the other one is now the exposition of yoga is being made. And it's essentially achieving yoga, which is complete union and body of body and mind. If you're able to do that, then you don't need the rest of the sutras. But that as a human, as we're finding, is incredibly difficult. And so it's organized as a sort of, okay, well, if you're having trouble bringing together body and mind, here's the next thing to do. Oh, and if you're having trouble with that, here's the next thing to do. And it goes on, so on and so forth. But it's a very intelligent structure. And one point of clarification to make is that Patanjali, who, as a side note, may have been one person, may have been one individual sage, or may have been a group of people. It's not quite, it's not certain in texts that we've read about it. He didn't necessarily invent the Yoga Sutras. He organized them and systematized them based on things that he pulled from other disciplines. And so he is the he will speak about him like he's a single person, but he is the one who organized them, but didn't necessarily channel them or conceive of them. In addition to potentially being more than one person or maybe being one person, the other uncertainty is whether or not the Yoga Sutras are divinely inspired. In some circles, I don't know what else to call them, the the Yoga Sutras are thought to have been divinely inspired. Uh, Patanjali had a vision or was told what to put down or how to organize this system of yoga. And it comes from a, a higher place. So he wasn't just cobbling things together. There was a very organized inspiration for all of this. Which is interesting. Maybe it came to him in a moment of revelation. Maybe he was practicing these different tactics on his own and the sutras are, are his sort of trial and error perspectives on it. We will never know. But it's, yeah, there's, there's definitely some mystery and uncertainty, which is important, I think, for us as teachers to really embrace and not act like we know the answer. Because there's no, you know, we're going off of ancient texts and little images of people maybe meditating or maybe not. I do think that it's amazing that in 200 lines, you have a complete system of yoga or of philosophy to guide really your entire life. And I do know some modern scholars or philosophers who really abide by this concept that it is a complete system. So I know of a few philosophers, practitioners, who this is their whole world. This is their whole philosophical system. It all comes from the Yoga Sutras, and they don't really bother to study other yoga texts or yoga philosophy outside of the Yoga Sutras. The Yoga Sutras is it, and uh, they will spend decades just studying the Yoga Sutras 
and it is so rich and full that you can spend a lifetime just studying the Yoga Sutras. Today, we're only giving it 30 minutes or so, so we're spending considerably less time. But I guess my point is that even within the very few number of lines of sutras, there is such a richness and a vast depth to this practice that it, it being the Yoga Sutras, have inspired and evolved into much of the yoga philosophy that we experience today as Western, I'm talking about you and me, as Western yoga students, much of what we experience today and much of what we know about yoga today is derived from the Yoga Sutras. In most yoga magazines and online publications, I think that a lot of the philosophy is coming directly from the Yoga Sutras, the Sanskrit words that we know. It's one of, if not the most influential yoga text in, in Western yoga culture. It's interesting because as you're saying that, it sounds almost a little bit limiting. Like, oh, we're only using this one text to guide the whole practice and, and teaching yoga. But within the text, there's just so much. I mean, within one of the sutras is the eight limbs of yoga. And then each of those limbs of yoga, like the yamas and the niyamas, there's five yamas and five niyamas. I'm still working on some of I'm still working on, you know, saucha, pure cleanliness and like trying to keep my apartment and myself clean all of the time, you know? And so that's one word that's a subcategory of a subcategory of the sutras. And so in some ways it's like, oh, is, is this one text really guiding everything? But then when you look at it, it's so rich and there's just so much that can be expanded upon from from it that yeah maybe it's enough for a lifetime i think that it is a very influential text on modern yoga partially because krishnamacharya and his students including patabi joyce and mr ayengar they all really followed and studied the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, and when they introduced yoga to, well, in the modern world, that became the philosophy behind the yoga asana that we, we learned and adopted, uh, at least in American culture, and, and more widely uh, in, in Western culture. I mean, maybe it was an obvious choice. Maybe it was the only choice, really. I, I don't really know. I, I often wonder what would have happened if Krishnamacharya had chosen like two or three different texts to be the underlying philosophy of yoga asana that was introduced in the West. Would our view be different? But that's not what happened. What happened was that the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali were the backbone uh, of the philosophy. And so that's really what we know and, and study today. And then you could see it as limiting. I, I definitely agree with that, that statement. And I, 
like to study other texts. And there are a couple of other influential texts. The, the one that comes to mind most easily is the Bhagavad Gita, uh, which is the story of Krishna and Arjuna. That is, and I'm, I'm not even really sure why that one comes up as kind of this other big influential text. I think it was just because it was so influential in uh, Hinduism that it becomes really important and then it, it makes its way into the modern yoga culture. But I think that the influence of the sutras of Patanjali, the yoga sutras of Patanjali is widely or can be attributed to Krishnamacharya and, and his students too. Who is Krishnamacharya? He is the teacher of Iyengar, uh, and Patavi Joyce and Deskachar, who are kind of the three. I'm actually forgetting one or two other of his students that I, I'm not able to come up with the name off the top of my head right now, but they brought modern yoga to, well, to the US, but to the Western world. So Patavi Joyce is Ashtanga Yoga, and then Iyengar, Mr. Iyengar is Iyengar Yoga. The, kind of the two big asana systems that are still practiced today and have influenced and inspired many of the styles of yoga that we practice today, including Anusara yoga. It's a derivative of Iyengar in a way. Right. But our philosophy is different. The Anusara yoga philosophy is, it takes the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which is a very classical yoga system and expands upon it into a very tantric philosophy. And actually, since I mentioned that, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali are a very classical yoga system. Classical meaning that it's a, it's a dualistic philosophy. Everything is put into two very broad categories, Purusha and Prakriti. It's the spiritual world and the material world, for lack of better terms. And those two broad categories really don't mix or cross over. They're two very separate categories. That's different from the tantric philosophy. The tantric philosophy is everything is one. Everything is one broad category. It, it's a conversation for another time, but it makes for very different practices. Right. So as Anusara teachers and students, we might approach the sutras in a different way than classical styles might. So, you know, in Anusara, we look at everything as spirit. So in that everything is spiritual practice, even our dark moments, even our moments when we sneeze and come out of meditation. And in in other systems, there is this divide, like you were saying, between the spiritual material, between the darkness and the light. And by expanding upon these aphorisms with a tantric background, you're able to understand them in a different way. You're able to understand them from the perspective of oneness. We talked about the sutra that says, Yoga is the stopping of the turnings of the mind. And from a, a tantric perspective, 
how, how would you rephrase that from a tantric perspective? Yeah, so in, the, in a very classical perspective, the mind is of this world. So Prakriti. In order to get to Purusha, the, the higher state of being, we have to somehow stop Prakriti. We have to get away from Prakriti. So yoga is the stopping of the turnings of the mind. And in a tantric point of view, the mind is just as much spirit as, as the spirit itself. And instead of stopping the mind, we might reinterpret it as something like uh, yoga is the refining of the turnings of the mind, or yoga is the focusing of the turnings of the mind. So instead of turning the mind off, as a spiritual practice, we might redirect the mind or focus the mind in a different way or allow the mind to flow in a slightly different way rather than shut it off or turn it off. And this will color the, the yoga practice in a number of different ways. This is one of my favorite parts of teaching and practicing tantric philosophy because this is something I really bring into my life. If yoga is defined as stopping the mind, then we cut out things that take us into our mind. So an example, I think I've used this before, is if you're, if you're teaching a yoga class and someone's cell phone goes off, instead of looking at that as interrupting the yoga, to me, that's part of the yoga. And as a teacher, being able to rebound from that and being able to, to use that to actually take your teaching deeper and then the students practice deeper, that's the real yoga. I'll tell you a personal anecdote. I taught a class over the weekend. It was a pretty big class. And um, this girl came in a bit late and set up her mat directly in front of me where I was teaching. It was, and I was teaching a restorative class, which I don't usually teach, but it was a, a subclass that I picked up. You know, restorative classes are a little bit darker and quieter. And so I put the students into their first couple of poses. And in this totally quiet, slightly dark room, this girl just starts laughing. She starts like uncontrollably laughing. You know, I can be funny in classes, but I wasn't telling any jokes. <laughs> it persisted for, um, for a couple more poses. And it took so much yoga for me to be able to stay centered as a teacher and then also for everyone else to, it was like a distraction. So all of that to stay, instead of looking at that as a reason to, or, or as a way of getting in the way of yoga, that was just part of my practice. And so by re by looking at the sutras from a, a philosophy of of oneness, of everything being part of the practice, we get this, in, from my perspective, richer experience of yoga. I love the example. 
I do think that it's important to then remember that you are looking at things through the tantric lens when you are working with that student in that situation. And that's a good thing. And then when we work with things like the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, we can also reinterpret and look at the teachings of Patanjali through a tantric lens. And we can interpret Yoga's Chitta Vritti Narodaha as yoga is the refining of the turnings of the mind. But I do think that it's important to know that the original intention of Patanjali probably wasn't something like refining or redirecting or focusing the mind. It really what probably was something more like stopping or restraining the turnings of the mind. And this is very challenging for me to do, but it, I try to understand from the a more historical, classical context. Uh, and then when I reinterpret things from a tantric point of view, uh, I have to understand that maybe that wasn't the original intention. And I feel like it's important for us to, to know the difference. Of course. That said, the sutras, like I said at the beginning, are these bare threads that are intended to be expanded upon. So I do think that gives us, and again, we'll never know. We don't know what Patanjali's intentions were when organizing these, but it does make me wonder if the intention was for all of these to be expanded upon, how far would, is there a limit or is there a, some place where Patanjali wouldn't have wanted them to expand into, or is there a wrong way, quote unquote, to view these little aphorisms? I'm not sure. And as we continue to work with them, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, we continue to deepen our understanding and we can move beyond the boundaries of the 194, five or six sutras and, and then combine those teachings with teachings that came later, several hundred years later, tantric philosophy comes along and helps us or gives us a new perspective that everything could be one and everything is divine and everything is yoga. So I love the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali and I love studying them. And I also love the tantric philosophy and seeing how I can apply the classical teachings to my more tantric personal view. Tantra is built upon the classical yoga philosophy so we're not throwing out the yoga sutras by any means. We are embracing them, studying them, incorporating them into tantra, and then we're expanding upon them into another realm, taking them deeper. And how cool is it in the year 2020, 
Happy New Year, by the way. Happy New Year. We are using the same system, the same tools to explore our consciousness, to get to know ourselves better, to practice living more deeply. We're using the same tools that people were using thousands of years ago. I mean, it doesn't get any cooler than that. I agree. The one other thing uh, before we go that I'd love to mention really quickly is that for Patanjali and the Yoga Sutras, the whole point of yoga is to get to Samadhi. And we have a whole other episode on Samadhi. So this is probably not the place to get really deep into the definition of Samadhi, but Samadhi just really quickly, I'm going to make up a quick definition. Samadhi is the highest state of consciousness. Samadhi is pure consciousness. It is Purusha. It is the spiritual world. And if you get to a state of Samadhi, then you're done. That's it. That's, that's the whole goal of the entire system, the entire yoga sutras, then you're done. In the tantric system, there's maybe some other different intentions for, for yoga outside of samadhi. Again, we have a whole other episode, so I encourage you to check out that episode, uh, our listeners to check out that episode, because it really helps to clarify and give you a really good idea of what the goal of the whole system is. If the yoga sutras are a workbook of sorts, samadhi is ultimately what you're working toward. We would love to hear about your interpretations of the yoga sutras, your favorite sutra, your favorite version of the sutra. Please give us a follow on Instagram. We're currently doing an Instagram challenge where we're posting a Sanskrit word of the day and inviting you to screenshot it and repost it with your definition. It's been really fun so far. We love reading your definition of yoga. We also have a website, www.yogachitchat.com, where we post blogs and you'll find a link to our Patreon page, which is the best way to support us, uh, www.patreon.com slash yoga chitchat. If you like all the content you're hearing, we would be open to receive your support so we can keep creating more. We've decided to go to a bi-weekly format for a while. We'll have a new episode every other weekend throughout 2020. We'll see how that goes. We feel like that is more sustainable for us right now. Um, but if we really feel a need for it, we'll go back to the weekly format depending on, on what our listeners are looking for. So please let us know how you're taking in the, the podcast and uh, we'll adjust accordingly. Thanks everyone.